Welcome to the latest edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz, on this edition of our show as we continue our look at major conferences. We're going to take a look at the SEC, where we will be joined by South Carolina head coach Frank Martin and Jimmy Dykes, former Arkansas women's coach, uh, former assistant uh, at Arkansas, played at Arkansas for Eddie Sutton, the late great Eddie Sutton, the Hall of Famer for many years has been an analyst covering SEC basketball for ESPN and the SEC Network. So Jimmy's going to break it all down for us, and we're going to get to that momentarily. Um, and my cat's ranks this week will be on our Julius Irving candidates. And uh, look, as I say, and you'll hear in this, uh, I'm always forgetting one. I need checks and balances, it seems like. And uh, Jim Beheim called me out jokingly, playfully, with nobody Beheim. So that was last week. Hopefully, I didn't omit someone this week in the Irving list. You'll hear that. But as I say there, we don't have to limit it to just 15, 10, 20 at the preseason. March Chadness this week will be on underappreciated programs. Chad Acock will join me from Turner Sports. So uh, before we get to my SEC predictions, our guests and our all-SEC team, let's first update you on where we stand right now. Conference games are being pushed out. Great to see the Big 12 release theirs. Uh, they're going with a normal schedule. Got some December games. Then they got the Monday, the Wednesday, excuse me, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Saturday. Hope it all happens. Uh, we're going to see more major conferences release theirs over the next week or two. Uh, some of the one-bid leagues are doing their part uh, by looking and shifting. And I tweeted out something from Western Kentucky because it was very easy to read. Basically, some of these leagues are going to do this. You go to one site, you play that team twice, back-to-back. can be back-to-back days or a Thursday, Saturday, or a Friday, Sunday, or you know some that combination. So it's one-stop shopping, home and home, one site. It's going to be random. America East is doing this. And you know a lot of them are going to do this because it's easier to alleviate travel. You have the officials come for the whole weekend. And when you talk to Frank Martin about this, you better get used to these same officials. Coaches are going to be wearing masks. Deal with it. Uh, and I think this will help a lot of the travel as we go forward because obviously COVID is not going anywhere here in the short term. Uh, as for non-conference events, the Mohegan Sun events, as we talked about last week, they're supposed to happen. Maui Invitational in Asheville, North Carolina, supposed to happen. The Bad Boy Mowers event, formerly Atlantis, now in South Dakota, supposed to happen. Single one-off games, whether it's SEC Big 12, Big East Big 12, ACC Big 10, uh, Gonzaga-Iowa, Gonzaga-Baylor. Iowa's, that game's in South Dakota, Baylor in Indiana. All supposed to happen. Um, and some of the random other one-off games between high-profile teams, supposed to happen. The problem is the Orlando events. There was a whole issue on testing. The major issue is this. Not every conference is on the same page. They got to get on the same page. The Big Ten, the Pac-12, they're testing every day. Andy Enfield, head coach of USC, was telling me this week that before you go to practice, you know whether or not you've got a positive or negative test. So far, it's all been negative. Then you can go to practice every day. That's what we need, not just in college basketball, but we need it in this country. But it's great to know that, that safety net that you know that you're testing negative. I wish we had that for everything. Problem is, not every league has that. Number two, the major hangup in Orlando on these Disney property was 
they were going to look at the CDC guidelines that if you once tested positive beyond 90 days ago from the point of when this tournament would start, you would get retested. But the virus could still stay in your system. And would that mean you'd have to sit? And if that's a positive test, would your whole team be wiped out for 14 days? That still needs to be ironed out before we go forward. Uh, we're seeing in college football in the NFL, that's not the case. The whole team is not wiped out. So we're hoping that is not the case. Now, we're seeing it in practice early. Marquette had to sit two weeks. Purdue had to sit a couple days because of a contact tracing issue. And in case that was Purdue, and in case of Marquette, it was a positive test. Uh, the Big Ten's not going to budge, by the way, in the 21-day deal, which is you sit if you're positive, and then it becomes 21 days total because they're checking your heart, myocarditis. They're the toughest on that. They're not going to budge on that, and that's fine. So if you're positive, you're going to have to sit 21 days. Here, though, is the issue. There are some schools in the Big 12 that were supposed to play in Orlando. They had guys test positive back in July. And the fear is you test them again in November, the virus could still be in their system, but they're not contagious. So now what happens? And there was just too many protocols, legal issues. They decide, you know what? We're not going to do this. The two main events, Champions Classic and the Jimmy V Classic, very sponsored, heavy events, big properties for ESPN, important properties for the sport as well. I believe those still will happen. Where? My gut is Indianapolis. But I still think those will happen. So we'll stay tuned on that. It's a fluid situation. I'm still going to be hopeful and optimistic. These games will occur in some form or fashion. A lot of them on home courts. So we'll have to weigh that in terms of uh, the selections. But, you know, that, that, that'll be a good problem to have if we got to decide where a game was, whether or not there were fans, and how we should weight it. Those are like good problems. All right. So let's get to our SEC discussion. First, here is my all-SEC team. Keontae Johnson from Florida. Eve Pons from Tennessee. John Petty Jr. from Alabama. A.J. Lawson from South Carolina. Trent Watford from LSU. There's going to be someone from Kentucky probably on that. B.J. Boston, Terrence Clark. Hard to do that yet. Here is my SEC. I got tiers. Top four. That's tier one. Kentucky, Tennessee, Florida, Alabama. Tier two. This grouping. LSU, Auburn, South Carolina, Arkansas, Missouri. Tier 3, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Texas A&M, Georgia, Vanderbilt. So, let's break it down with Jimmy Dykes from ESPN and the SEC Network. Uh, Jimmy, first off, before we get to the league, uh, I'm curious, you've been a coach, been in the media for a long time. One of the things that's going to be really interesting is, my assumption is, like football, you know, the coaches are going to have to be masked up, indoor sport. Uh, now, there won't be the fans, so at least most, there won't be large crowds. So the communication, they won't have to scream as much. Uh, but that also means in terms of talking to officials, you can't be spitting in their face. So there's going to be some distance, masks. How do you think coaches, especially in the SEC, will adjust to having that level of communication a little bit muted? You know, it's interesting. I was talking to uh, a Final Four official just yesterday. <laughs> And he brought that point up, and he said, you know, maybe maybe it will soften the communication between us and coaches as the year goes on because we got a little bit of a buffer between us now. And Because I think sometimes when those officials, so they put on a black and white jersey, they're not viewed as human beings anymore, you know, and we just kind of rip into them as a coach. Uh, so I, I, I think 
with no fans there and your voice being projected all over that arena as a coach, I think you're going to be a lot more aware of what you're saying, how loud you're saying it, and the tone that you're saying it with. Because it's going to be picked up now much easier by microphones and cameras. So maybe there'll be a good growth process for all those coaches out there, you know, this year to kind of understand I can communicate maybe a little different, get my points across as always. So I think that's going to be something that we're all going to watch and have to adjust to it on the fly. Those coaches are, but obviously it's a unique situation. You and I have been talking, you know, over the last few months that we're all going to have to adapt and, and have flexibility in how we do things in our job for coaches, for officials, the whole thing. But the important thing to, for all of us is, man, we just get through this season Make sure we find a way to have that NCAA tournament. Yeah, no question. The other aspect of this is the officials. You, you say you spoke with one. Uh, my gut is they will be regionalized, and they will probably be in one spot for the weekend. There's just no way that officials can be doing a game, you know, in Bloomington, Indiana one night, and in Lexington, Kentucky, or even further than that, Gainesville, Florida, the second night. Um, they're just going to have to be regionalized, which means if you're a coach, you might not have liked the calls on a Thursday night, but you may see the same guys Saturday night. Um, how do you think coaches will, and, and players to some extent, will adjust to that? Well, I, I think that's going to go into the communication again. I, I go back to that, the fact that you know, I, I may have this, this crew, these same three guys, 10 or 12 times this year. I, I've got to learn to work with this crew and have a good mutual respect. And I, I think that's going to go through the thought process of coaches. And you talk to those officials right now, there's no way that they can now travel like they used to in groups, even from the hotel to the arena, right in the same car. Can't do it anymore. You know, they're going to have to have some real strict rules in terms of how they communicate, how they get to games. But I think that's exactly the, the direction that not only are we going to go, that we, that we need to go. You know, we still have to look out for the best interests of everyone involved from a health standpoint. And certainly, you know, those uh, heads of officials, uh, even at the national level, I think they're out in front of it realizing this is a different year and officiating is going to look different and every coach has to live with it. we got to adjust with it. And I, I think that's, uh, that, that's the only direction we can go, Andy, honestly. All right. So as we look at the SEC and to this point, I think this, to me, this sort of is a thread that I'm looking across the country is we don't know if there's going to be disruptions. We've already seen it in football. So as much as I value talent, I really am looking more than ever at experience because if this team, Team X, suddenly can't play for a week or two weeks, yeah. not because they have a positive, but maybe, you know, contact tracing and they, you know, or maybe they're getting ready for this game and suddenly that team can't play. Uh, and so more than, you know, teaching, uh, or, you know, if you don't have to teach as much and just coach and these players are ready to go, if they haven't been on the court for a week, that's going to be paramount. And that's why more than ever, you know, I like a team like Tennessee and obviously Kentucky's Kentucky, but that to me is where I see the top tier, but an experienced Tennessee, I think really could benefit, especially this season. So you look at it nationally to start with old, old is going to win. Old is going to win. And especially early watch Baylor, watch Wisconsin, the Zags, they got a lot of dudes back. Old is going to win early across the country and old is going to win early in league play. So you look at the SEC and you already mentioned you know, Tennessee is extremely old. Alabama's an old team. Florida's an old team. Uh, Ole Miss is an old team. South Carolina's got an old team. Alabama's got a lot of guys back. Those teams, I think, have a real advantage right now uh, the first 
30, 45 days once we start playing games. Man, you're adjusting so much in a normal year with your new guys. Just think of those, those great Kentucky teams and Cal talking about, I just, I just got to – I hope there's enough runway left by the time I get to March as I'm, as I'm trying to land this talented jet. Well, that runway is a lot shorter now because the, the amount of time and preparation that, that everyone's going to have. So, man, I'm completely on board with you. I, I'm looking at old teams right now that they're ready to play a game right now or the first day of practice. They could go back to this is what we did last year. They know how they're supposed to play. Young, talented team, they ain't got any idea how they're supposed to play this time, even in a normal situation. So I'm completely with you, and that's why I like those teams nationally and the teams in the SEC that I think are going to be there at, at the end because of how well their season went in the beginning because they were old. Yeah, and I would add nationally, you know, Iowa, Illinois, Villanova, yeah. uh, I think will fit in that category. All right, so here's what I like to do. Rather than give it a laundry list of rosters and stuff that I'll name a team, you tell me what you like about them. So we'll start at the top. Uh, let's go with Tennessee. What do you like? I love their depth. I love their physical style of play. I love uh, the talent that they have. It's hard to find a weakness right now on that squad because their guard play is terrific. And I know there's a battle right now between five or six dudes on that on that floor every day in Thompson Bowling Arena fighting for spots. And you've got two potential all-SEC first-team guys in John Fulkerson and Eve Pons. Uh, you've got an unbelievable coaching staff, and they are old. And they've got size, Andy. They can shoot it. They're the real deal. They're a preseason, obviously a top-10 team. They're one of the teams out of the SEC that I think could could obviously be in that Elite Eight game, and you're, now you're one game away from the Final Four. They're 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 right back to where they were two years ago in terms of on the national level. All right, Kentucky. You can't ignore the talent. You know they got a little bit older with Sar and Mins, uh, both kids transferring in there, being eligible, and that was a big get because talking to that staff about a month ago, I said, "Who are the two best shooters that you have?" And he says, "The two it's the two transfers that came in, and Mins and Sar." So the Sar kid is not a physical, strong, just punky at the rim type guy. But man, this dude is skilled. He's long. He can shoot it. He can face up and drive you. You know, Cal always loves teams that block shots at the rim. They're going to have a lot of length. Then that freshman class is loaded. And we always see that freshman class come on every year. But I think I think Kentucky early is going to struggle to find themselves because that's how they always are, but especially because of the COVID situation. But by the time March rolls around, they'll be right there again, battling for the top of the SEC. They've got to shoot the ball. They have to be able to shoot the ball. I'm convinced they can drive it. I'm convinced they can be beasts on the boards. A long defensive team, a really good passing team. They got to make shots, and we've seen that before out of Kentucky. Yeah, and those freshmen led by BJ Boston and Terrence Clark certainly will highlight that. All right, Florida, what do you like? They're old, man. That's an old team. I, I think Keontae Johnson is going to be one of the top two or three vote-getters for preseason player of the year in the league. He's been a mismatch, Andy, ever since he's been on that campus. He's a 6'5 basketball player. You can play him at the three, the four. You can get in there and bang as a a five if he has to, but he's really, really good now. He's capable of having a 19-point, eight or nine rebound year and be right there in the the mix for the SEC player of the year. I think it's a team that Mike has. That these are all his guys for the first time. These are all his guys. So I think you're going to see a tighter team, a more connected team defensively. I know they have really emphasized that in the floor right now. So I like their talent. Uh, there's not just not a lot of holes in that lineup right now. And and this seems kind of feels like it's a big year for Florida to say, hey, we're not going away. You know, we saw them being inconsistent the last couple of years. This is a year I think they kind of, they, they kind of answered those questions. They're, they're a top three or four team in the league. 
Alabama. A lot of dudes. You know, they're, they're an old team. Uh, John Petty is, he'll be in that race as well for the SEC Player of the Year. I've been honest in my evaluation with him his first couple of years there that if the three-point ball wasn't going in, he wasn't doing anything else to help you win. And that changed last year under Nate Oates. And John uh, started posting up, started driving the ball a little bit better, took care of the ball on the offensive end, was probably their best all-around perimeter defender. Um, that, that's, a, that's a team, this Jordan Bruner kid that transferred in from Yale, I think was a huge, huge get for them. You know, he's a 6'10", 6'11 kid, an all-Ivy League player that can run and keep the pace going. He can knock down shots. They got players in that backcourt of Petty and Shackelford, Javon Quinterly, the former McDonald's All-American who set out last year from UConn. Keep an eye on Alabama. Just talking to them, I, I get the sense they feel really good about where they are right now in October. So I kind of think that's our first tier. This next group of teams, uh, I think you could put in any order. So I'll start off with LSU. What do you like? Yeah, I, I would almost slide him up as well. I would add one more team to that top tier. Okay. Because Javante Smart, there was probably a three-week stretch last year towards the end that he was the best point guard in the league. He's a big 6'4", 215-pound warrior. And he's, he's really good at that point guard spot. And, uh, you know, Trenton Watford is a kid that he will probably be, again, in that SEC Player of the Year race uh, early. He might even be the preseason Player of the Year. When you look at his, his body, his size, he's so good from the elbows on down, driving the ball, getting fouled. Darius Days is a grown man. I mean, a grown man at 6'6", whatever he's 245. The talent is there. The talent is there. And Cameron Thomas from LSU, I think this guy's a bucket getter for Will Wade right off the bat. He's about a 6'5 guard that I think is going to be a double-figure score, boom, right away for LSU. All right, so I don't know why I was saying tears. I'm on Jimmy's jet right now, so we got a seat <laughs> open up in first class. Yeah. So we got LSU got LSU got the last seat in first class. Now let's go to business class, and I will start seating business class on Jimmy's jet, and I'll start now with Auburn. What do you like? I like Bruce Pearl a lot. I think we've learned over the years, don't ever count out a Bruce Pearl coach team, okay? They lost more than anyone in college ball the last two years. Phenomenal back-to-back teams. I wish... We had that NCAA tournament last year because Auburn was playing really well at the end, but they lost them all, basically. Talking to their staff, they, they know they're young. That's another team that's going to – they have to fight and scratch and find their way by January, February, and hopefully you know, do some really good things there at the end. But the Sharif Cooper kid is a really special talent for a freshman. I don't think he's going to dominate early like some people are predicting. I think there's a learning curve there. His body's got to grow more. Uh, but they have some other kids in that freshman class that are just really good players. I think they're going to play faster. I think they're going to press. They're going to be very aggressive. And to answer your question, as long as Bruce Pearl's coaching at Auburn, they're not going to be easy to play against. All right. So it's kind of a weirdly designed plane because we only have four seats in business. All right. On the Jimmy's jet. So Auburn gets one of the seats. What about South Carolina? What do you like about the Gamecocks? Well, I like the fact that they're tough, they're old, I think they know who they are, and there's a lot of value in that. That's one of the four or five teams I mentioned early that that's an old team. The A.J. Lawson kid, she should be an all-SEC first-team guy based upon his skill, his size, the number of minutes, the number of starts that he's had. He's got to take a jump. Like We can't keep hoping that the Lawson kid is a first-team all-SEC player if you're a Gamecock fan. He's got to get it done this year. I, I, I'm a big believer in, in the Cousinard kid who won that point guard spot last year, especially on a Frank Martin coach team because he epitomizes 
what South Carolina basketball is all about, man. He's a junkyard dog. They got some big, strong guys on the inside. But if Lawson is a first-team all-SEC guy, South Carolina is an NCAA tournament team. All right, so two other seats in business. And, you know, because of that odd number in first class, there could be a spot open in first class. So we will go with these other two teams. You tell me what you like and whether or not either one of these two teams could move up into first class, Arkansas and Missouri. I like Arkansas. I'm, I'm telling you, I think that's the team right now nationally, but probably in the SEC that's, that's kind of a mystery. I'm not saying they're overlooked because most teams, most people don't know about. But uh, Coach Musk has stockpiled a bunch of really good to almost great individual players over there. Uh, the, the, the kid that transferred from Indiana, Justin Smith, I had an Indiana game last year. I was very impressed with that kid on film. And he, he touches every area of the game. He was a 10-point guy, five-rebound guy, I think, last year in Indiana. But he's a versatile kid, can play the two, the three, the four. They got a really good recruiting class. Moses Moody, was he was right there with the best of the best last year in high school basketball. The Vanover kid that transferred from Cal set out last year, 7-3. He can shoot the ball. He's a presence around the rim. They've got a lot of pieces over there that if that point guard play is solidified, he's got big wings, big guards size for the first time. Arkansas got punked on the glass last year because of lack of size. Not anymore. That That's an Arkansas team that I've got my eye on that could really jump up there and surprise some folks. All right, what about Mizzou? I got them that last seat. Yeah, I like your pick. That's probably the most experienced team returning in terms of minutes played, starts, all those things. You know, Drew Smith uh, and Mark Smith, those, those guys are really good, big physical guards. You know, Jeremiah Tillman is a guy that you know, if he stays on the floor and he produces at a high rate over a 40-minute period, he should be an anchor in the SEC that's hard to match up with. He's a 6'11", 255-pound kid that has gotten better every year but continues to foul a little too much, continues to, you know, have two or three plays a game where you're like, man, what? You, come on. But if he's grown and matured and is, you know, maybe a second or third team all-SEC player, Missouri's got the grit and the toughness uh, the Conzo Martin defensive mentality about him to do good things. They have to shoot the ball better. They have to shoot the ball better. You and I would have been their second and third best shooter last year. And I don't know if you and I are very good shooters. They got to shoot the ball straight and it's got to go in because they do so many things other than that. They got to shoot the ball better this year. All right, let's go to coach. Nothing wrong with being in coach. You're on the plane uh, on Jimmy's jet. So we got Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Texas A&M, Georgia, and Vandy. If you can give me a little highlights of what you like about each one. So the Mississippi schools first, Ole Miss, Mississippi State. If there's another school in the SEC that could finish in the top five that right now is going to start off at the back of the plane, it's Ole Miss. It's Ole Miss. I, I think Kermit did a phenomenal job grabbing the kid out of Arizona State, Romello White. I mean, that's the piece that they lacked last year. A guy that's going to get you guaranteed eight, nine rebounds a game, give you something on that low block, give you a toughness and a fight that they really didn't have last year. The Hadeem C kid is back, and he was coming on last year. He's a 6'11 post player that's active, plays hard, does what Kermit needs him to do. They had a kid setting out. I was there last fall, Andy, watching the practice. Uh, his name is Jarkel Joyner, okay? He, he was a graduate of Oxford High School in Mississippi, and the pre, uh, Andy Kennedy staff, they didn't take him, didn't offer him. He averaged 36 a game in high school, went to Cal State Bakersfield, led the whack in scoring his last year out there, transferred back and set out. This guy can go get buckets now. 
he's right there and you put him on the floor with Devontae Shula, the senior guard, that's two really good old guards that Kermit Davis is going to have on the floor. I, I like Ole Miss. You know, I, I said don't discount a Bruce Pearl coach team. I, I think this league already feels the same way about Kermit. They got knocked down a little bit last year. They lost five or six close games. And you are what your record is. But they were closer last year than we realized. I like Ole Miss, not just because I like the powder blue uniform. It's one of the prettiest colors in college sports. <laughs> and uh, down in Starkville? Yeah, it's a little bit of a remake. No Reggie Perry. Yeah, they you know they lost so many guys, but uh, there's a kid on his team named Abdul Adu. He's probably going to be a 10.8 rebound guy. One of my favorite players in the league, Andy. One of my favorite guys. He is a workhorse. He's a screener, rebounder, screen and roll, punch you at the rim. He kind of sets the tone for how Ben wants to play. You know, he's got young guards and, and some transfers that are gonna, they're going to have to produce the scores because they lost so much on the scoring side. But anytime you have a, an old guy that anchors your team on both ends of the floor around the rim, you got a chance in games. You know, we don't know a lot about Mississippi State because they're going to rely on so many new guys. But I just know that anchor on the inside, Adu, is a pretty good starting point. All right. College Station, A&M, Buzz, what do you like? Yeah, I like Buzz, you know. You know, that's a team that I guess last year when we came out of, I think they were in Orlando, and when they came out of there, they were like number 332 on the Ken Palm rankings, like the 332nd worst team in the country. They worked their way all the way up to like 112. That's a huge gap that they closed down as the season went on. Because as you know, with Buzz, there's a culture, there's a standard, there's a personality, there's a way of life that you have to adjust to if you're ever going to see the floor for Buzz. And it took his guys, not because they fought him, just because it was new. It took guys like Save Me On Flag an extra month or so before they were all in and understanding this is how we do things. They had some terrific wins last year in the SEC. The Flag Kid is a real mismatch, Andy, at 6'7". He shot the three ball last year at a really high clip. Uh, that's another team that didn't shoot it straight last year. Everything for a last year was so hard on the offensive end. It's so hard for them to get a basket. I think Flag's going to have a really good year. And A&M had to get a transfer and a rebounder, Kevin Marfo from Quinnipiac. Yep. I think he led the nation in rebounding last year, but he gives them some hope with the loss of Nebo around the rim. I, I, I like A&M. They're going to be picked probably 12th, 13th, somewhere in there. I don't think they'll finish there. Their culture, they know who they are and how they play is, is too hard to beat. All right, Georgia loses... Maybe the number one draft pick in Anthony Edwards. What happens to the Bulldogs? Yeah, you know, that's a tough call because they had likely one of the top two or three picks in this next NBA draft, and their record was at the bottom. So you lose a talent like that, and now where are you going to go? They could be and should be a better team offensively because he was such a ball-dominant guy. Talking about Anthony Edwards. He was really good. There's also times he was really bad. But the offense kind of always had to go through him. So I think you're going to see them playing faster. I know Tom wants to play faster this year. They want to push the pace, well, kind of like he did towards the end there at Indiana. Uh, that's another team, Andy, that really struggled to shoot last year. I mean, they were at times just continued to be below 30% as a three-point team. And it's so hard to win that way. They got a kid named Kamara who last year was only as like a six and five guy. Uh, as a freshman, I think he's a really good player, but they're going to have to get it done by committee. There's no, I don't see an all SEC player or a top 15 or 20 player on that roster. Not right now. Not right now. Maybe somebody on that roster will prove me wrong. But when you start the year without one of the top best 20 players in your conference, it can be tough. It can be hard. 
and Vanderbilt might be in the same boat. I, I love Stack and what I saw from him last year and how his kids played and, and uh, just how he handled his team. The Pippen kid is really good. He's an undersized kid. He's really good at that point guard spot. Um, but as you know, you're looking at McDonald's All-Americans now coming to the SEC on a regular basis. And they're not just going to Kentucky. They're going to Tennessee. They're going to Florida. They're going to Auburn. They're going to Alabama, whether it's through a transfer or not. And if you're going to win in this league, then Vanderbilt has to figure out how do we get the talent that goes with our culture, our coaching, all the stuff we're doing well. There's a cap on it, though, unless you can reach the talent level that those other schools have in the league. So we got to continue to keep our eyes on Vanderbilt in recruiting right now as much as anything. Well, I love the breakdown, Jimmy. I appreciate it. I always love your optimism, your attitude. And uh, I know I said this to you privately. I will say it publicly. But my condolences to you and your family, the loss of your father, who I know was uh, not just your dad, but a very close friend. He raised an incredible son. Uh, I know he was incredible to you and your family. And so uh, may his memory be a blessing. I pass on our condolences to you uh, during this tough time. Yeah, Andy, thank you. Basketball fan will understand who my dad was when I say he's the kind of guy that you would want on the floor in a tie ball game with a minute to go. That's how he was in his life. He was a warrior. He was a fighter. And he touched thousands of lives. And I appreciate you saying that. It means a lot to me. And it meant a lot for me when you text me. Thank you. You're a friend. All right. You too, Jimmy. Take care. Stay healthy. And I can't wait to hopefully see you in person. Absolutely. See you, buddy. Andy Katz, that guy will rank his wife's dinners. He'll rank anything. All right. Time here for Katz Ranks on March Madness. March Madness 365. A top 15 of... Julius Irving Award candidates. So, took some flack on the previous lists. I need some check and balances sometimes, and Jim Beheim gave it to me because Buddy Beheim was not on our list last week uh, of the two guards, Jerry West Award, and he should have been. So, that's the thing with these preseason lists. We don't have to limit them down to 10, to 15, to 20. We certainly can expand them, throw a lot of people out there, see how they perform. In what will be an unprecedented season, who knows how many different games everyone will play. So, for this purpose, I'm going with 15. Small forwards. Irving, obviously, um, could play multiple positions. So, let's start at number 15. Ron Harper Jr. from Rutgers. Uh, Playing alongside Gio Baker. Harper Jr. is certainly going to get a lot of touches. uh, And he can get to the hole. There's no question about that. At number 14, Seth Towns of Ohio State, formerly of Harvard. Normally, I would have him higher, but in talking Ohio State, they kind of wonder how healthy he's going to be at the beginning of the season. So I want him on the list. Just don't know how productive he will end up being. Hope he's healthy. At number 13, Chris Duarte of Oregon, who's going to pair with Will Richardson, another, another highly touted returning duck. And Duarte will certainly have... Uh, plenty of opportunities to shine for Dana Altman and the Oregon Ducks, and he'll be one of the better players, no question, in the Pac-12. At number 12, Kessler Edwards from Pepperdine. The Waves don't get as much attention as they should. You pair Edwards and Kobe Ross, so they've got two of the top players at the respective positions this season. If they can just win some games early and be consistent in the WCC, they've got the makings of a possible NCAA tournament team. At number 11, let's go back out to the Pac-12, Oscar Da Silva from Stanford. First of all, I love him as a human being. Just a great young man, high character. And I think we're going to see, even without Terrell Terry, you're going to see Da Silva produce even more for the Cardinal this upcoming season. 
Let's stay in the Pac-12 with Alonzo Verge Jr. from Arizona State. Pair him with Remy Martin, Josh Christopher, and this is going to be quite a scoring trio for the Sun Devils. At number nine, Joe Wieskamp from Iowa. Uh, this is a loaded uh, perimeter wings, if you will. Front court, the whole team's got talent, especially offensively, and I think Wieskamp, he'll be bearing threes. He can get to the hole. He's going to have a big-time year for the Hawkeyes. In the Big Ten, Isaiah Livers from Michigan. Livers was hurt at times last season. Uh, when he was healthy, though, he was the Wolverines, um, you could argue, their best player, most important player. Um, obviously, Xavier Simpson, John Teske. Uh, but when Livers played well, Michigan played well. And I think he'll have a banner season for the Wolverines. Uh, let's go back out to the Pac-12 and Chris Smith of UCLA. Uh, he's going to shine. There's no question. He is going to blossom even more so for the Bruins. And he'll have a Pac-12 Player of the Year type year for UCLA. At number six, John Petty Jr. for Alabama. He's going to be first team All-SEC. He will compete for SEC Player of the Year. And Nate Oates has got a squad down in Tuscaloosa. Let's stay in the SEC. Another player that's going to compete for SEC Player of the Year, and that's Eve Pons from Tennessee. Extremely athletic, veteran team with the Volunteers, and Pons will help Rick Barnes, I think, compete for the top spot in the SEC with Kentucky. At number four, Aaron Henry from Michigan State flirted with the NBA draft, came back, and for Tom Izzo, he could have an all-Big Ten first-team type season. So you could have Henry and Livers really going at it in the state of Michigan. At number three, Keontae Johnson from Florida could end up being the SEC Player of the Year. Gators were a little inconsistent last season. Uh, the hope is that they will be much more consistent this season, but I think Johnson will shine even more for Mike White and the Gators. At number two, Corey Kispert from Gonzaga. He was a finalist for this award last season. Uh, he could win it this season. He's going to be a leader for the Zags, potential number one team, potential national champ. Um, experience, used to be a glue guy. Now he's a go-to guy, does a little bit of everything for the Zags. And number one, Sam Hauser from Virginia, transfer from Marquette. Cavaliers struggled to score last season. They won't this season. Hauser is going to be a big bucket getter for Tony Bennett. You really could go in any order, I thought, in that first three, Hauser, Kispert, and Johnson. Uh, but for now, we'll go with Hauser and see how he did with his redshirt year working under Tony Bennett and Virginia. So those are the top 15, for now, candidates for the Julius Irving Award. And joining me now here on March Madness and March Madness 365, Frank Martin, the head coach of South Carolina. And Frank, a lot to unpack with you here before we get to the SEC. Uh, first, how are you feeling? Because you've had your bout with COVID. And, and if you can walk me through what happened with you. I was just getting ready to have knee replacement surgery back in the spring and, uh, you know, all the pre-op stuff you go through. And I was already stressed out with having to go under. And I didn't want to go under again. And then go through the rehab of a knee replacement and the thought of what goes into a knee replacement. And, uh, and then I just went in to take a test just to get cleared and pop. And, uh, I, I never felt bad. I never had symptoms psychologically. It hurt me, you know, those 10 days that you're in your own house, but your children kind of look at you like you got six heads and, and, uh, you got to be away from your family. And then you're, you're worried about, 
did I get them sick? Uh, are they going to be okay? And, and then, you know, it just, it was a lot going on, but eventually got away from there. And then a month later I went through my surgery and something's like right now, I just, I feel like I had this attack of alopecia. So I've lost my hair in spots all around my head. So it's, uh, you know, I feel good, but I, I don't know. There's something different than a year ago. And uh, uh, it could be my mind playing tricks on me, but, uh, but health-wise, I'm good. I've had a, a hundred physicals and all kinds of stuff done. And uh, at least the pain of my knee is gone. How about that one? Andy, at least, at least now I can walk and sleep better than I was uh, six months ago. So to that point, um, you know, you're dealing with young people all the time. I mean, how much have you been able to preach the, the unknown that, look, yes, you could be totally fine. You don't want to get it because no one wants to get something, uh, but you don't know what's going to happen. You may feel 100%. You may not. Two years from now, you may not. Like, how much have you been able to convey that to your players as, as sort of a caution? Yeah, the 10 days I, I was in isolation, it's while the country was locked down. So I really didn't have to say anything to anybody. I was kind of quiet about it. Uh, but before I made a public statement, I had a Zoom call with them. And uh, I spoke to them about that. Listen, man, I've been extremely careful. I, I you know, I, I've been in my house. I go to the grocery store and my house. We don't go anywhere else. My wife doesn't go anywhere. Children don't go anywhere. And I got it. So, you know, you have to be careful. We have no idea how this thing works. I, I get a kick of everyone that has opinions on what should have been done back in January, February, and March. It, good for everyone for having an opinion. That's the great thing about where we live. But this is something brand new. This is like Monday morning quarterbacks. Yeah, let's look back and figure out what we should have, could have done. I was as careful as you can be, and I got it. And I tried to share that with our players and then create the sense of responsibility because they have a responsibility to their parents and to their grandparents and their uncles and their neighbors and everybody else. And it's important that I shared that with them because we were still away. And then ever since we got back late July, uh, it's been a constant conversation of reminding them the responsibility. If you guys don't want this sacrifice, my wife and I, we love going out to dinner, going to the movies. I can't do that. We, we, we can't go because I have a responsibility to make sure that I stay in the right place to keep my players safe uh, because they signed up to go through the season. And then I'm asking them responsibility to each other. If they signed up, if they want to opt out, they got their year back. They don't have to do this. But if they, they want to play this year, uh, they have to sacrifice certain uh, qualities of life that you have as a college student uh, that they just they can't deal with right now. So everything's about risk tolerance. I mean, obviously, if we really wanted to completely eradicate, you could argue, you know, shut everything down, don't do anything, and there would be no host for the virus. That's not realistic. It, you know, could be other issues, certainly mental health issues. No one wants to be isolated for that long as much as we love our families. Um, and, and you know, we'd go stir crazy. So that's understandable. So with that being said, um, you know, fingers crossed, uh, as baseball concludes, you know, college football's had some issues, but so far in the United States, every sport that has restarted has finished. Um, you know, we'll see as college football and the NFL go through the rest of the fall uh, and basketball is getting ready to start in November. What has to happen for our sport to make sure that we can get to that finish line? Players, coaches, we all have to do our part, be extremely careful. We have to uh, understand what we're dealing with, we can't shut it down. I mean, you know, I'm fortunate. 
I, I have a job now that pays me a lot of money. I live in this big old house, plenty of space, beautiful backyard. But when I was going through it, I'm, I'm remembering when I was a kid and we're shacked up, my family in a small little two bedroom apartment. And I'm saying, can, I, can you imagine if we had to be locked up in that apartment? It would have been a miserable experience and real difficult to deal with at the time. Uh, so I speak to our players about that because majority of them, that's the way they were when we were on lockdown. So for us to be able to get through the year, we all have to understand uh, that this is what brings us joy. This is what brings us relief, us to coach and play. This experience adds value to the quality of our life. So to take advantage of it, we have to do our part. And then what we need the decision makers to do, and I'm going to toot Greg Sankey's horn here as our commissioner in the SEC, we're dealing with something brand new. We don't have the complete answer. We don't know how this formula is yet, let, let alone have an answer to how to solve it. What we can't do is rush to decisions. It's like when you're coaching a kid, he makes a mistake. That's what 18-year-olds do. You know, you can't make a hasteful, rushed decision on a mistake they make that's going to impact the rest of their life because I'm trying to act like a coach. You know, I'm trying to manage a young person's life. Well, we have to manage this moment. And I think that's the beautiful thing that happened in baseball. If you look back when they first got started, I think it was the Marlins got shut down right away and everybody's running around and they kind of just stayed the course. Guess who almost made the World Series? The Marlins. We can't rush the decisions. Something's going to happen. We're going to have some teams miss games. Uh, some of us are going to play 27. Some are going to play 25 games. Some of us are going to play 18 games. We can't sit back and say, well, that was a failure. No, it's a success because we're keeping these kids in a, their mental state is in a real good place. I can tell you our players right now are as happy as they've ever been, you know, and they want to compete and they want to play. But if they can't play in a game, the fact that we get to practice and we're around each other and their quality of life is good and all that stuff, and then me. It adds value to my life. I go home happier when I'm around our players. That's just part of who we are. And so, I don't know. From that standpoint, Andy, I, we're going to get to the finish line. You know, it's just we can't overreact to how we manage things as we're trying to get there. And I will tell you from personal experience, you know, my daughter's a theater major and she can't do theater right now. No one's doing theater. The fact that sports are being played that's why I have no sympathy for complaining because you're at least getting a chance to play your sport. There are other, you know, majors, if you will, for lack of a better term, or interests that can't happen right now. So take advantage of something that you actually can do and is being provided to you uh, because that's what's happening in athletics right now. You know, one other thing about adjusting, and then we'll get to your team, is, you know, there can't be whining on certain things. For example, there may be the same officiating crew the whole weekend, there are going to be things like limiting travel. So if your crew is regional and you're home for a Thursday, Saturday uh, or a weekend, whatever it's going to be, it might make more sense for those officials to arrive. However, the testing is done. They get tested and they're there for the weekend. And you may not like calls on day one, but you're getting the same guys on day two. And you can't complain about it because that's just what the way it's going to be. That's exactly right. And, and the officials think about their life. You know, if they have to do it the normal way officiate here in Columbia on Thursday, get in a car, drive to Atlanta after the game or something so they can get on a 6 a.m. flight to Manhattan, Kansas, where I used to be. 
and get the Manhattan, Kansas to officiate a game the next day or Saturday at noon, they're exposing themselves. So, you know, they've got families too. And we've got to figure out a way to make it work. And then when we deal with a moment, because it's going to happen, we all have to take a deep breath and realize like this chapter in the book has never been written. There's no sense of reference where we can go look at this and say, all right, this is how we're handling it. We got to deal with it when the moment comes. And we got to trust in the people in place. And and then, you know, us coaches and referees, we're going to have to become best of friends because we're going to see each other a whole lot more than we usually do. But uh, but truth be told, um, there's there's a lot of respect amongst officials and coaches. Right? That's the beauty of college basketball uh, is that officials and coaches, yeah, we're not allowed to go to dinner and all that other stuff. But uh, both of us need to be united, the officials and the coaches, so we can provide the best product for the athletes. And there's a lot of respect in this business between the officials and the coaches. You know, one other aspect of the protocols, and I know nothing is, um, you know, mandated, although we'll see, you know, each conference may take a different lead in it. And we've seen in football in the SEC, fines if they're not masking appropriately. And I know it's different in basketball. You know, it's more intimate. But a lot of times you have to talk loud because there's a crowd. Um, that may not be the case. Uh, so the masking for coaches or bench players, if that's what has to happen, uh, to communicate so that you're allowed to do what we all want to see happening. How do you think coaches will react to that? If, if that has to happen to get through this? Yeah, I actually, uh, wrote the NCAA. I think this should be a permanent thing that we wear masks. It's the best thing ever for me. Nobody can read my lips anymore. I, uh, now, I, I, on a serious note, Andy, it's an adjustment. I'm a big communicator. That's why I'm loud. I'm not loud because I'm trying to talk down at people either way. I'm loud because I love to communicate. And when I feel that there's something I know that I can share with somebody that's, that's part of my team that can help them, I, I want to make sure they can hear my point. But I'm also a great listener. So I love it when people share their ideas with me. And, and like right now at practice, I've got that mask on and it's really, really difficult. Even though I know they hear me, it's really difficult. I was taught when someone speaks to you, you look them dead in the eye. So I've learned to kind of listen and read lips at the same time. With a mask on, I always feel like, okay, they can't really understand what I'm saying. And it gets, it gets really uh, difficult for me, but it's the right thing to do. And, and you know, some people say it's optics. Some people say, well, the coaches are getting tested just like the players. What's, you know, what's the difference? And uh, listen, we don't know what's right and what's wrong right now. So any precaution that we can all take to make it safer, or at least think it's making it safer, I'm all for. You know, eventually it'll get back to normal and we'll learn how to function in normal a little bit better because of the experience we just went through. Yeah, I will tell you, the, the best thing that'll come out of this is if we all have good hygiene, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that'll be positive uh, as a society. All right. So in terms of your team, um, as I look at the SEC, uh, you know, I think you guys are, you, you, we could debate about which tier you're in, but I think you're in a tier of teams that certainly should be postseason with a chance to certainly be in the NCAA tournament and do something. Um, I'm a big fan of A.J. Lawson, Seventh Woods. Obviously, people may forget about what he did at North Carolina or didn't do and obviously is getting another chance with you guys. Help me understand where this team is at in terms of your strengths and, and where maybe some people, you know, might be a little surprised. We were a postseason team last year. I mean, whether NCAA, NIT, one or the other, I, who knows? 
Uh, I thought going into the conference tournament, uh, the resume that we had in place, when you win games at UMass, at Virginia, at Clemson, you know, you have a winning record in your league, you know, and you're in a league like the SEC, you put yourself in a place where you're going to be a postseason team. Now, it just depends how much more you can win, whether you're an NCAA tournament or NIT team. But I felt we were a postseason team last year. And we basically returned our whole team. You know, we lose a key guy in Mike Coatsar that was a tremendous player for us, second-team all-league player, four-year starter. Uh, but we had guys that practiced against him every single day, and now it's their turn, and I feel comfortable with that. And then we lose a guard, Jair Bolden, who transferred to Butler as a grad transfer, but we had seventh wood sit now. So to your point, I don't know how many teams, I'm going to say power five because I coach in a power five league. I don't know how many power five teams because the transfers, going pros, all the stuff that we have, have a two-year starter that's averaged 13 and a half points a game for two years like A.J. Lawson. Yet nobody speaks about him. He's got to be the most underappreciated real good player in the country. Not from what people say he's going to do, for what he's proven that he can do on a good basketball team. We return uh, Jermaine Cousinart, who was a uh, first-team all-freshman in the SEC last year, averaged 12 and a half points a game and became an emotional and vocal leader of our basketball team last year as a freshman. And, and then you add seventh woods to that component. And we return basically everybody. I'm excited. I can't say that when we're preseason, whatever, like, yeah, and then when we're not, nah, I don't pay attention. I never pay attention. I, I think preseason polls are for fans and for interest, which I'm all for. For whatever reason, it must be that I'm loud, that nobody ever likes to pick us as one of the good teams. I'm going to speak about my teams for a second. If you go through my history, our teams usually finish in the top third of the league every year here and at K-State. I don't take that for granted any single year. I don't think that that's a given. No, it's really hard. But I know this, my team this year is pretty good. Can we finish there? I don't know. I respect the journey too much. I respect the coaches that I coach against too much. I think winning is extremely hard. But I know that the guys that we have in place have done it. They understand. They believe in what we do. And they're experienced in what we do. And I've also learned that when you return your guards, you got a chance to win games. And we return our guards. So I like our team. We're big. We're strong. We're fast. A couple years ago, I said our team was really fast. And uh, we dealt with major injuries. I ended up the season with seven scholarship players. I hope that's not the case this year. But we're really fast. I mean, you know, you're talking about Keyshawn Bryant, Justin Minaya, TJ Moss, Alonzo Frank, guys that have done, like, unbelievably good things for a team that, you know, they weren't the 11th, 12th, and 13th man at the team that went into Virginia and won and went into Clemson and won. And then they just win, win double figures at those places. They were like starters and major rotation players. So they've been through it. They know they can do it. And there's a belief there. Well, and also I think it's critical this season that if you have a disruption, uh, whether it's, you know, you guys or maybe a team you're playing suddenly can't play and now you don't have a game for two weeks, um, you know, having a veteran team that can deal with adversity and a team you don't have to teach as much as coach, I think will be critical of surviving this season. Great point, Andy. I just had this conversation yesterday with my wife. You know, we we're at the house and we we're just talking and she's asking me, how's the team doing and all that. And I said, what an advantage we've had. We got a stable roster that, you know, we didn't have three guys transfer and three guys graduate. We basically return everybody. 
Uh, so there's understanding for how we do things. I have an understanding of how they learn. So as we all adjust, as we're going through this preseason journey here to try and get to the season and then manage, you know, we got to end up the day before a game instead of practicing, doing stuff through Zoom to better protect ourselves to, so we can save the game day rather than save the practice day. I think I can trust our team doing that because of that experience you're speaking about. And that's, that's a tremendous advantage because I've thought back to some years where we've been really, really young and a lot of first-year guys, and it would have been really, really hard to get through the preseason and get a team ready to play uh, and then deal with anything that comes our way. You know, the shoe was on the other foot kind of say. Well, Frank, I just love that you're looking good, feeling good. And, you know, I can't wait to obviously watch you guys play and hopefully uh, everything will be smooth. Fingers crossed. Stay safe. Appreciate you, Andy. All right, as promised, it's time for March Chadness. Chad Acock from Turner Sports joins me here on March Madness 365. Chad, uh, for this week's discussion, we're going to do underappreciated teams. And I want to qualify this because... I'm looking at teams that I think don't get the love consistently nationally. I've had to have my own growth on these teams, a lot of them, give them a second look. But for whatever reason, in their respective leagues, I'm not talking about the coaches. I'm not talking about the players. More the traditional mainstream media and the fan bases and other national pundits that sometimes overlook some of these teams on a regular basis. So that's where I was coming up with my list. Yeah, and I liked your list. You sent me your list, 1 to 10, and uh, you're right. These teams are kind of teams that have been overlooked in the preseason, sometimes always seem to outseed those expectations. So let's start at number 10. You've got Bradley. You know, they've had some underrated success more recently. Uh, last year, they won their second straight NBC title, and uh, over the last couple of seasons, they've beat some big-name schools like SMU, Penn State, Kansas State. Uh, and then as a 15 seed, they were up on Michigan State's Final Four team uh, with like seven minutes left in the game before Cassius Winston kind of took over. So good program. But uh, what else do people need to know about Bradley? Yeah, Brian Wardle's done an outstanding job at Bradley. And I hear, you know, first of all, they got a great fan base. Uh, and they, they've given me some flack when I have not had them as one of those potential teams that should be looked at as a Valley favorite. And, you know, they've been right there better toward the end. But that's fine. But with Northern Iowa and Loyola Chicago, Bradley, the last couple of years, has really matched them and, and should force all of us to look at Bradley as a team that can certainly get back to the NCAA tournament. Yeah, and Andy, you and I were talking, and Bradley's kind of one of these mid to low major teams that doesn't really get a whole lot of recognition you know, until either the conference championship or even the opening round of March Madness. People just don't really pay much attention to the, those types of teams. They like the big brands. Yeah, I mean, that's why, you know, they're not, I could be dating myself, but people have sometimes go back to Percy Hawkins in terms of an all-time great Bradley player, but they've had their moments. And there's no question that they're a team that I think consistently has been good in the Valley. Yeah, I like that one. Now, number nine, let's look at St. Bonaventure. The Bonnies have won at least 18 games per year since 2014. Uh, They got a W over UCLA in the first four back in 2018. Andy, what do you like about the Bonnies? Mark Schmidt. Uh, the head coach of St. Bonaventure is consistently good. I mean, he's a rare breed for St. Bonaventure because he likes living in only in New York, which is sort of the snow belt in upstate New York, because he's had opportunities. I thought there would be a couple of times where he might have gone back to his alma mater at Boston College. Uh, but you need a coach like that at St. Bonaventure who wants to be there, that doesn't view it as a stepping stone. And he's done a great job of blending 
you know, international players. He's really dipped into Canada quite well, which is no surprise dealing with climate. But they always sneak up on teams in the A-10. No one likes to go there. Not easy to win there. And uh, they've always had really good guard play. Uh, they go through a little bit of a cycle. And I think the Bonnies deserve to be on this underappreciated list. Yeah, don't sleep on them. Rutgers kind of learned that the hard way last year. A team that we thought was heading to the tournament they ended up falling to the Bonnies in non-conference play. Number eight on your list, we've got New Mexico State. This is a team like is as consistent as they come. You know, they've won the WAC regular season title five out of the last six seasons, and they've won the conference tournament uh, seven out of the last eight years. Andy, why do people still sleep on New Mexico State? Well, a lot of that has to do with their league. Uh, the WAC has changed dramatically uh, over the last decade. It's not the WAC that I covered in the late 90s. It's a league that, you know, it was never a one-bid league, then it rarely was, and now it really, that's all they've got. And the Aggies, uh, while they've been pushed at times, you know, there have been moments for uh, schools like a Bakersfield or Grand Canyon, but New Mexico State has been sort of the, the standard in the WAC. No one quite knows how good their competition is. Chris Chance done an outstanding job there as the head coach, and if you remember a couple of years ago, Chad, they should have beaten Auburn. Oh, yeah. Uh, the year Auburn went to the Final Four. And that might have been New Mexico State's, you know, one of their best teams in quite some time. And and that's the kind of team that no one would have wanted to face had they gotten by Auburn. So they're just consistently good. Yeah, that was a one-point loss to Auburn. That was tough. I think I think people have an expectation that New Mexico State's going to be good. They're going to win their league. They're going to run through it. I think they would get more love, more respect if they could finally break through. They've lost 12 straight tournament games. Uh, several of them closed, a couple three-point losses here and there, and then obviously Auburn that we mentioned. So we'll see if they can finally break through and get that upset in March Madness. Number seven, we've got USC, the West Coast USC, not South Carolina. We're looking at uh, the Trojans. Andy Enfield kind of took him two years to get USC going, uh, turned around. Since then, they've won at least 21 games in four of the past five years, and they're red hot on the recruiting trail. They've signed four five-stars in the last three seasons. Andy, why do people not really give USC the attention they should probably get? Well, they're overshadowed, certainly, by not just their football program, but UCLA in L.A. And remember, Chad, a couple of years ago, Andy Enfield had a legitimate gripe that they did not get into the NCAA tournament. Oh, yeah. They were, on paper, maybe they were a game or two shy. They certainly looked the part. And I think this past season with Okongwu, you remember they beat UCLA at the buzzer in their regular season finale um, and had the Pac-12 tournament gone full and in the NCAA tournament, they would have been an interesting team to seed and, and see what would have happened with them in the NCAA tournament. So he's recruited well. they got to do a better job of winning some non-conference games, but they've been a tough out in the Pac-12. And uh, yeah, just that by nature of his history, they consistently get overlooked in L.A. Yeah, and the Pac-12's been down the last few seasons. Do you think that's also played a part to people just kind of sleeping on the Trojans? Yes, although last season they weren't down, but they never got a chance to show it. Um, because I think we would have seen like maybe six teams in the field. Uh, if you remember, the favorite Washington had a disastrous season oh my gosh, uh, yes. as they slid all the way back. And, you know, the rest of the league sort of moved up. And so it was disappointing that they didn't get a chance last season, but uh, they certainly were worthy. All right, we'll stay out west. Let's look at St. Mary's, another very consistent team under Randy Bennett. Several NCAA tournament appearances. They had a Sweet 16 in 2010 uh, when Matthew Delvadova was a freshman. Uh, but for some reason, that you know, they just can't break through the Gonzaga shadow. Do you think that's why people don't really give them the love they've they've probably earned? Yes, uh, they have been more than BYU. 
the pest for Gonzaga over the last, I don't know if I'd go a decade, but certainly uh, the last six or seven years. Now, Gonzaga has certainly gotten the best of them the last couple of years, but there were some years, and I witnessed it two years ago in the WCC tournament when St. Mary's won the tournament to earn that bid behind Jordan Ford. Uh, they would have been in the NCAA tournament this past season had there been one. Gonzaga bested St. Mary's in the rematch. Uh, they were able to complete that tournament. So, yes, uh, St. Mary's gets overshadowed by uh, Gonzaga, by the arrival of BYU, uh, by the fact that Moraga is this tiny little inlet, if you will. I don't I mean, it's not on the water, but I mean, it's just sort of like the little cove or cave, if you will. Oh, it's secluded. Yeah, very secluded when you get through that tunnel uh, coming from Oakland. And um, so they're sort of tucked away in the mountains and uh, no one pays attention to them until they need to. Uh, they don't get the attention they deserve in the Bay Area. Obviously, it's a pro town and a Stanford Cal dominated when you talk college basketball and college sports in general. But Randy Bennett has done a phenomenal job. He could have probably gone to a number of different Pac-12 jobs. Didn't happen. Uh, they've got the pipeline with Australia, but they've proven that they can win at the highest level and compete in the NCAA tournament. You know, my one criticism would be I wish they would play more high-profile non-conference games. He's gotten better with it. I'd like to see even more of it going forward. Yeah, now let's jump into your top five with Oklahoma. Uh, the Sooners, you know, under Lon Kruger, very consistent. They've uh, made the tournament six out of the last seven years we've had the tournament, uh, including Buddy Hield's Final Four run. Uh, I feel like they're never really respected compared to other Big 12 teams, at least in the preseason. Everybody's like, oh, Oklahoma's going to drop off, and they somehow always find a way to have a good team. Uh, what do you like about the Sooners? Well, they really do mirror Lon Kruger. And I know people like to say sometimes that he's vanilla, um, but there's almost just a quiet confidence about him. And actually, when you get to know Lon, he's an incredibly nice man and generous and does a lot for Coaches versus Cancer and a lot of charities. And, and he runs his program very similar, just sort of buy the book, do their thing and move on. And there's just not a lot of fanfare. They don't promote their guys as much. You know, Buddy Heald sort of shattered that because they had to, uh, but they keep everything sort of in check. And they win. And every year I'm kind of wondering, okay, how good are they going to be? And they're right there to either be in the tournament, bubble, but they're always just within that margin to get in. Yeah, I feel like Oklahoma's a team that doesn't get enough love. And then on the flip side of that conference, you've got Texas that probably gets more love than they deserve for the last five years. Uh, now let's look at number four on your list, uh, Xavier. They've had a great run of success under a lot of notable coaches, Thad Mata, Sean Miller, Chris Mack. Now they're in Travis Steele's third season. Outside of the one year that you know they earned a one seed, I feel like they're kind of overlooked at times despite a really uh, historical line of success here. Why do you think that is? Well, look, they've had tremendous coaches that have come through there, from Pete Gillen to Sean Miller to Thad Mata to Chris Mack, and now Travis Steele takes up the baton. Great rivalries with Cincinnati when they were in the A-10 with Dayton, now in the Big East. You know, they've started to really build those rivalries as well. The thing is, though, Xavier gets overshadowed in Cincinnati. They may not like to hear that, but certainly when Huggins was there, that was the case. So they were sort of always a little bit. Now they're a smaller school, smaller Catholic school, so they're not going to have, obviously, as much attention as the bigger University of Cincinnati. I get that. But, the, you know, even in the A-10, they weren't the primary team, the team that everyone talked about. You know, for years it was Temple. You know, then... You know, you could argue, you know, Dayton has sort of that regional following. They host the first four, a bigger arena. That was legitimate. You go way back in the A-10, you've got, obviously got those great UMass teams. I mean, I could go on with that. And then the Big East, 
They're the newbie there. They're never going to be the, the most talked about team in the Big East. We know that. And yet, they consistently are a team that is a major factor in whatever league they're in every year. And by the way, Chris Mack used that really well. He always coached with a little bit of a chip, like, hey, no one takes us seriously. And it worked for them. Hey, he's still doing that at Louisville. <laughs> he ain't taking anything from nobody. He, he always has a chip on his shoulder. Uh, but one thing with Xavier, I know, you, you know, not too much about coaches, more about the programs, but, you know, Travis Steele, first couple seasons, you know, in NIT first year, they looked NIT bound last year. Would you blame somebody for not really wanting to give them more respect going forward until Travis Steele proves he can break through? Yes, this is more of a historical pick on this than the last two seasons. So you're right. They could cycle themselves out of this list if they don't, you know, get in there on a consistent basis. But let's see. I mean, um, you know, they made a late surge over the last couple of seasons where I thought they were going to be better, but they were in the mix at the end. And they feel like, you know, uh, with Paul Scruggs, that they got a chance this season to be a, a sleeper. Yeah, I feel like they've earned a chance to at least see what they can do under Travis Steele in year three and four. So uh, let's jump into their top three. Number three, Tennessee. 2018, they were picked 13th in the SEC preseason poll, and they ended up winning the league. If that's not underappreciated, I don't know what is. Uh, everyone kind of wrote them off now after the Grant Williams uh, era, no Schofield. Uh, but they've signed three five-stars the last couple of years. So what do you think about Tennessee? Well, look, you live, went to school, and are from SEC country. And in basketball, as rich as that history is, you know, they've had, obviously, some great players in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Every few years, they've got, you know, elite talent that have come through there. But one thing that happens to them every year is they get overshadowed by big boy, big blue nation. And Kentucky is always going to have that over Tennessee. It's a huge rivalry. We know that one of the reasons they built Thompson Bowling as big as they did is to compete with Rupp Arena. You know, they don't probably need to have an arena that large. And you've been there, Chad. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, it's loud. Yeah. It's huge. But it probably doesn't need to be as big. Uh, and maybe they'd be even better if it was a little more intimate. But hey, they want to do things big. They want to compete, obviously, with their neighbor. Uh, but I always feel like we have to sort of catch up on Tennessee, regardless who's been the head coach, whether it was Bruce Pearl, now Rick Barnes, you know, and, and anyone in between or even before. It just feels like we always have to wait to give them their due for whatever reason. Yeah, and talking about Rick Barnes specifically, you got a guy that Texas, you know, didn't think he was good enough anymore, even though he won 20 games in, what, 15 out of 17 years. And he comes to Tennessee that was an absolute dumpster fire <laughs> that Donnie Tindall left. And uh, he turned around in three years. So for whatever reason, Tennessee gets slept on. Rick Barnes gets slept on. I love that the major top three. Now, number two, Purdue. If you throw out last year, the Boilers had won 26 or more games in four straight years, and they won the Big Ten twice in that stretch. Go back even further, they won at least 25 games between fall of 07 and spring of 2011. So you're looking at kind of two different four-year stretches of just top-tier excellence. But every year, people want to talk about Michigan State, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio State before they even think about Purdue. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, it's because of where they're located. Uh, the state of Indiana is all about Indiana. Purdue's got its niche. Mackey Arena is one of the best arenas in the country. Their fan base is phenomenal. They're loud. They're proud. But, you know, they are very hyper-local. Um, Purdue's not going to get the same attention in Indianapolis, even though it's easier to get to Indy from West Lafayette than it is Bloomington, a highway versus two-lane road. But, uh, you know, look, this goes back to the way Gene Cady felt, you know, with Bob Knight, classic bully. And, uh, you know, he always felt <laughs> underappreciated 
in the Big Ten, and yet Purdue uh, always held its own. And Matt Painter, you know, I think has gone down as one of the great coaches in the Big Ten. They're always good. If there's a dip, it's just minor, and they develop players. They're better in years three and four. You know what you're going to get with them. They play hard. They play physical. They defend. Uh, and they are underappreciated, I think, every year. Yeah, it's funny. Number two and number three on your underappreciated list probably have two of the best Twitter followers. Anytime we do Twitter uh, polls or any fan engagement polls, Tennessee and Purdue are right up there. They always drive uh, their polls to the top. Now, number one on your list, we're looking at Florida State. The Knowles just get it done every year, and we always act surprised when they do. Last year in the preseason, the media gave them uh, or gave the ACC four different teams uh, with first place votes, and the team that actually won the league, Florida State, didn't receive any, uh, but they still won. Leonard Hamilton probably doesn't care. He's seventy-two. He looks forty-two. The guy's a machine. Uh, what do you like about uh, the Knowles down in Tallahassee? Exactly what you described, Chad, and I'm guilty of it too because I'm never quite sure how good they're going to be. A lot of their players are not the stereotypical McDonald's All-Americans, but he does get the same type of player. You know, his bigs are long, athletic, rim protectors, develop into, you know, whether they're shot blockers or finishers around the basket. Guards are strong. They defend. You know, sometimes they're not as great a shooting team, uh, but they make up for that. Uh, on the defensive end, and then they just they manufacture points. Uh, Leonard loves to slow play this group, downplays them, and yet they get it done every year. And it's interesting because Duke and Carolina obviously dominate the ACC. They have everyone else is sort of playing in its shadow. But what's interesting is Tony Bennett, over the last five years, has forced Virginia into that grouping to now where we expect Virginia to be in there with Duke and North Carolina. And even though Florida State's been there just as much, we don't do that. I don't know why, but we don't include them and make it a foursome every year. You know, it's always the three and then maybe Florida State. And yet they're right there. You know, I mean, think about Miami had that one flirt where they won the league. They've not been, you know, as good to stay up there. You know, we'll see if Louisville can be consistent enough to get up there on it. You know, that it's new to the ACC. I get it. You know, Notre Dame, they've had their moments and they slid back. But Florida State isn't going anywhere and they haven't gone anywhere and they've been there and we need to all appreciate that. Yeah, I like that. Now, let's close it out with a wild card you didn't really have on your list. I want to talk about UC Irvine. Uh, you know, since uh, Russell Turner took over in 2010, uh, he kind of built it back up. And then since 2014, they've uh, won the league five times and then finished second those other two years. Uh, they made their first tournament appearance in 2015, and then they got their first victory in 2019 when they upset Kansas State as a 13 seed. And then after Max Hazard you know, decided to transfer to Arizona, they still won 21 games and won the league last year. Am I off here on UC Irvine? Do you think they probably deserve some more love too? Yes, Russell Turner's done an outstanding job there. Um, they've been the team to beat in the Big West. And, um, you know, they should have gotten their due after, you know, that win in the NCAA tournament two years ago. We need to consistently look at them as the team to beat in the Big West until they're knocked off that perch. And that's another good one because the Big West does not get the kind of love that it deserves. All right, Andy. Well, that wraps up our underappreciated teams. Uh, let's run it back next week and uh, every week leading up to November 25th. Appreciate it, Chad. Stay safe. And that'll wrap up this edition of... March Madness 365. As always, appreciate my Turner Sports team that helps put this whole thing together. Outstanding individuals, all of them. 
Chad Aycock, Abby Stoltz, Michael Kaplan, Sean Bartley, and the entire NCAA.com team that repurposes this podcast in a variety of ways. I appreciate all of you, our fans, the engagement at March Madness on Twitter, Facebook, NCAA.com, all our social media. We'll talk again next week. Stay safe, everyone.